the Italian Wine Podcast is the community-driven platform for Italian wine geeks around the world. Support the show by donating at italianwinepodcast.com. Donate five or more euros and we'll send you a copy of our latest book, My Italian Grape Geek Journal, absolutely free. To get your free copy of My Italian Grape Geek Journal, click support us at italianwinepodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. Grazie mille. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, and welcome to Voices. This is Cynthia Chaplin, and today I am totally excited to welcome Tahira Habibi to Voices. Tahira has a hugely impressive string of accomplishments to her name, including being the first black woman on the cover of Wine Enthusiast when she was named a 40 under 40 tastemaker in 2020. She was in the top five best psalms in South Florida in 2014. And in 2023, she made the list of best black sommeliers in Ebony magazine. But she's probably best known as the founder of Hue Society. And I'm really excited to talk to her about her next venture, for, for that. So thank you so much for making time to be with us today, Tahira. Welcome to the show. Thank you. That might be my favorite intro ever. It was short. It was sweet. It was I, I wasn't cringing. <laughs> thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to talk to you. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to be really excited to hear about what you say, but I just want to get a little of your backstory out there for, you know, in case there's anyone left on the planet who doesn't know who you are. You grew up in Philadelphia and you moved to Miami. And I just want to talk a little bit, you know, as you said, short and sweet about how you found your way into the wine world. When did you decide wine was going to be your passion? Yeah, my my entry, my pathway into wine is a little bit different. Um, it wasn't my intention to join the wine industry because um, I loved drinking or, or any of those kinds of things. Or I was so passionate about wine. For me, it was more of like a power move and, and a, a way to create some access for myself. Um, I noticed how powerful, particularly, you know, back in when I joined the industry back in like 2000 eight or nine, when I started studying, it was a completely different world than it is now. Like now wine is more for enjoyment. But back then, you know, we both know it was like, it was grueling out there. You know, there was one, one lane that you could go in uh, through the Florida masters. And it was, it was a lot more powerful in the sense of like status and, and stature kind of things. And so for me, I saw that. And I also saw that people who looked like me were, kind of left out of it intentionally or unintentionally we just were not involved in it we were not seeing ourselves we weren't participating I didn't grow up drinking wine I didn't know anybody else who grew up drinking wine so in my head I'm a very community oriented person so I said oh well this is something I got to take back to the community I need to take this back to the hood because this is these this is uh, you know and I'm looking at the numbers right billions of dollars in this industry and I'm just like what's going on? Like, this is a power thing. And no one, none of us were really paying attention to it. So it's, it was just interesting that I ended up, you know, really pursuing my career. And I just happened to be really good at it at the same time. Well, you, you started in hospitality, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So I was already working in restaurants. 
I was a hostess when I started taking wine classes in Philadelphia. So I was taking classes at night and, you know, doing the hostess thing during the day. And I was introduced to it because I was working at a restaurant. And, you know, prior to that, I had been a bartender and, you know, um, a cocktail server and stuff like that. So I'd already had like hospitality background. Yeah, which is important. I think, you know, most of us in the wine world started off somewhere in hospitality. And I think um, as much as, you know, I don't think anybody ever sets off with the goal of being a waitress or a hostess forever. Having that kind of, you know, floor experience really puts you in touch with it. So you were hostessing and bartending and you found wine and you decided that it was a big business and you wanted part of the action. I love that story. That's amazing. But it's interesting because you're completely right about, you know, back in the day, and of course, I'm older than you. So you got started in 2008. You know, I was beyond that <laughs> by by some good stretch of time. And, you know, and you're right. Uh, you know, wine was very formal, really rigid. Um, there were only a few paths in, you know, for you, it was, you know, having a goal to become the first black female master sommelier because the court of master sommelier in the U.S. was kind of the only way in in those days. I, I was at the court in London and, and doing WSET in London. Yeah. So I was white, but I was still the only woman in the room all the time. Yeah. The outliers change, but the systems are the systems, right? So they affect all differently. But Unless you are, or in, in that time in particular, unless you were a white ma- man, there was some there, there was something that you were going to have to like fight through. That's for sure. And you really, you know, had a massive fight and you know a pretty traumatic experience at the court of Master Sommelier. You know, again, briefly, what what happened and how did you sort of decide to veer away from that really traditional path and find, you know, a positive way to deal with the damage that they caused while you were trying out that path. You get so indoctrinated when you kind of start your career. And I, I fully believe that that was my only, even though I had had certifications, they weren't enough. So I thought the only way that I, anybody would take me seriously, particularly as a black woman in this space, which at the time I didn't know any other black woman. I didn't even really know any other black people. And so I knew I, I had a hill that I was climbing, a mountain, not even a hill. like Yeah, a mountain for sure. Right. And so I knew I had to be the best because that's just how we're programmed. Right. Like anytime we go into a space which we are not the majority of representation, i.e. rap or athleticism or something like that, we have to be the best at it. And that's just our that's how we're taught. And so I knew that going in and I knew that in order for me to, to get to the level that I want to get into, uh, you know, I had to study my my cho-cha off. And so it was definitely, I studied all the time. I moved to Miami after I finished my certifications at the Y School of Philadelphia. Um, and mind you, I have these certifications, so I'm good. I know my stuff. I'm smart. I know all of these things. And in my head, I was still starting at ground zero because I had not had a CMS certification. And so I moved to Miami randomly, no apartment, anything, but I had decided I'm going to start my wine career and it can't be in Philadelphia. So it's either going to be in Miami or California. Flipped the coin, ended up in Miami, was studying as I worked as, again, this time I wasn't a hostess. I was working um, as a cocktail server on rooftop in um, a restaurant in Miami. And so I was studying, you know, again, during the day and working at night. And so I moved in uh, June. September was my test. 
So in that time, my head was down. I was just going at it, you know, with the books because um, I was so nervous about the test. That is not a lot of time for that test. <laughs> yes. That is a hard test. And I test. was so nervous about it. I was so nervous. I was terrified. And the other part of it is I was broke, right? I had found an apartment at some point, but I had to fly to New York to take this test. That's the closest place they were offering it. And, and I was so hell bent on getting these certifications and, you know, getting to the top to become a master some that, you know, I was like, sooner the better. And so I was willing to sacrifice that time and, and all the, the things that I needed to do. But when you're taking these tests, you're funding yourself, right? Which is another barrier. And so I had to pay for my hotel. I had to pay for my flight. I had to pay for the test. It's a two-day test. You know, all these things are in alignment. So what ended up happening is the instructors at the beginning of the, the class, you know, it, it was kind of pompous. And, you know, I, I feel like, I don't know if it's like that anymore, but I feel like they try to intimidate you a bit. A bit. My God. You're being very kind. I'm, I'm being gracious. But, you know, um, and so they, they made it very clear, like, you, you're not allowed to directly talk to me. You need to, to um, and if you do address me, you need to address me as master. You know, it's no secret that, there are not a lot of um, black and brown people in the white industry, at least at that time. And I was the only black person in the class. And so I kind of looked around like, uh, I know they not, I know they not being for real. And no one flinched. No one looked, no one anything. And I was just like, this, this, I'm just going to like, they can't be serious. They have to mean something else. And so in my eagerness, I raised my hand because I had a question and they didn't, you know, they, they called on me and I went to start asking my question. And basically they were like, you need to address me as master. And I, everything in my soul shattered because I just couldn't believe that you could be this obtuse. Like you, there's no way that you're telling this black woman in this class <laughs> and all the instructors were white that I need to call you master. This is the 21st century. It's not 1855. I mean, this re happened very recently. Uh, and I was just like, this, there's no way. And so um, I knew from that point on that this wasn't my path and it wasn't something that I could continue on with. And, you know, because the, 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 the courses, they go up and up. And so the next test, you would have to serve them. And I just couldn't imagine doing service and, and, and calling the master. Like, that was just a line for me. And I didn't want to be in community or company with people who didn't see my humanity, who didn't see anything wrong with that, who didn't, you know, feel like, oh, we might need to reel this one in or, or this is this actually isn't OK. And I know, like, the language is not built for me. And, you know, the courses and, and none of these languages are built for us. Like even to this day, when you take these tests, it's all Eurocentric fruits and vegetables and all of that kind of stuff. And I just knew at that point, like, OK, well, this is not going to be it. So I passed the test, you know, with flying colors because I had already had certifications. I knew the information. <laughs> and so I, I was defeated. I was terrified. I went back home. I cried a lot. But I never told anybody because I was so scared of people not taking me serious and discrediting me and, and what I knew and, and all those things. And so um, I did have the one certification from them in December of that year. I got a call to open the St. Regis because everybody 
in the town at that point knew that I was studying to be a psalm. And I would say it out loud to anybody, oh, I'm going to be a psalm. Like there's this, this, you know, you make a lot of money cocktail serving in Miami, but it's, no, no, this is not for me. Like I'm not getting comfortable with this. I'm not, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be a psalm. And so, you know, one of the guests had recommended me and I got a call to interview and uh, basically I did well on an interview. I was very nervous. My boss at the time is very thick French accent. So I couldn't, you know, always understand what he was saying in the interview. And so, yeah, I messed up a little bit, but they called me back and they said, you know, we want to offer you a cocktail serving job. And I said, no, even if it's at the same reaches, the answer is no, I'm going to be a psalm. And so if I want to be a cocktail server, I'll say where I'm at. I'll find my psalm job. And then they called me back and was like, okay, you're right. <laughs> so they offered psalm position. But I knew, you know, that fear, I lived with that fear for a long time, but then that fear kind of got pushed down because when I started working at the St. Regis, I had to start battling other, you know, kind of situations in which I had no idea were were coming at me. So I didn't even have time to focus on this looming thing of like, oh, you don't, you're, you don't have all three of these certification kind of things even though I was certified, I was dealing with the guests and them not being used to seeing a black woman on the floor. Yeah. It's the whole imposter syndrome thing too. Oh oh my God. And so they, you know, they, they were not shy or at all about me not wanting me on it at their table. They would send me away. They were not shy about you know, the um, aggressions of, you know, the the racist comments, the, you know, Kool-Aid comments, the what do black people know about why? Do you like Moscato? Um, <laughs> just like, that's just shocking. It, I mean, I know that it's true. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not something that we haven't all heard and read about and talked about for the past few years, but it's just shocking to hear it come out of your mouth yeah. that that was going on, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, no. And it's, I think that the thing for me was I wasn't protected, right? When you get into these corporations, they're protecting the guests more than they're protecting their employees. And sure, they're, they're protecting their bottom line. Let's be honest here. Right. They're protecting their their coins. And so for me, at some point, I just got tired of it. Like, I will say that working at the St. Regis and that being my first SOM job was incredible. Incredible experience. The The person who was, you know, mentoring me at the time, I learned so much. I've tasted probably almost every single expensive wine in the world. <laughs> like, you know, we had a crazy wine list. I had to learn, um, you know, on my feet, They, it, you had to be exceptional, you know, and then I had the extra layer of, again, always being questioned and having to be exceptional. So I didn't have room to fail. I have room to, you know, make mistakes and all the rest of that stuff. And I had an incredible learning experience. Who mentored you, Tahira? Who mentored you and lifted you up and supported you? Well, at the time, the the beverage director's name is Sebastian Verrier. He's a very sweet man. He's very French. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's pretty well known in Miami. And he was, he's a very kind guy, for sure. And he taught me 
a lot of what I know about wine, particularly fine wines and vintage wines and all of that stuff. And I, and that was just incredible, whether it was intentional or not intentional, you know, just being in that environment and being able to watch him work. And, you know, he is the person that interviewed me and, and basically gave me my first job because if he had said no, then I wouldn't have had that job. So I'm always grateful for that. But there's, there, there are also those moments in which no one was protecting me either. And no one was taking serious what I was going through on a regular basis. Like not my mental safety was just being destroyed on a regular, all the time. And on top of that, I didn't have anybody who I could talk to. I didn't have anybody who looked like me, who understood what I was going through. I didn't have anyone who, um, un- who would, you know, take up or stand up for me or any of that kind of stuff. And I was just consistently being pulled apart and not, and you know, whether it was the guest or the system or whatever. And so on the one hand, it's like, oh, you know, you, you should be incredibly grateful that you have this opportunity and this really great job. It's very high end luxury hotel. And on the other end, it's like, they are, you're losing little parts of your humanity bit by bit by bit by bit every single day you go in. I think this is something that the wine world really still has to get its head around because uh, it's better now. But uh, I think our industry is incredibly competitive, incredibly blind to the challenges of being surrounded by alcohol all the time, uh, having to always be the best, competing with everyone in the room around you. And you know, there isn't a lot of support. Thank God you know, we now have things like Hue Society and, and other things, because you're right, it, it's an industry that is not hugely aware of the mental health pressure that people in the industry face. So, you know, you started Hue Society in 2018 and your whole aim was to counter the lack of diversity and and the lack of support that you saw when you were a Psalm. So I love the Jay-Z lyric that inspired the name, you know, what's better than one billionaire too, especially if they're the same hue as you. I love that. Um, I think many, many, many BIPOC and LGBTQ plus and other underrepresented people, you know, experience this kind of just a complete black hole in the wine world. You know, being in a room, seeing no one who looks like you, no one who represents your values, nobody who you can talk to and, and, and get some support from. So talk talk us through the creative process that brought Hugh Society to life, because obviously you saw the need. When did you think it up? Who Who helped you out? Who were your go-to people at the beginning of Hugh Society? Are you enjoying this podcast? Don't forget to visit our YouTube channel, Mama Jumbo Shrimp, for fascinating videos covering Stevie Kim and her travels across Italy and beyond, meeting winemakers, eating local foods, and taking in the scenery. Now, back to the show. So Hugh Society was born out of something else. So in 2015, when I decided to stop being a poor mom, I had decided I was going to become an entrepreneur and I was going to start doing community building. And so my first organization was called Sipping Socials. And the point of it was to make sure that I was able to um, create wine events that catered to cultural awareness, right? Because we didn't see ourselves. And I knew there was a reason why we weren't participating, right? I knew that 
if we were able to maybe learn and engage through our own lens, through our own cultural lenses, through food, through music, through art, through fashion, and be ourselves, we would be more into it. And so I I started sipping socials in Miami and I was throwing events. I was doing wine events. I did this event called the Wine and Reggae Festival. 3,000 people showed up and I was like, oh my God. So it works. And then, you know, I started doing more events and that's when I realized like, oh, I actually like, this is actually the key. When I understood that that worked, I was moving out of Miami to Atlanta and I said, okay, it's time to expand. I want to create a hub a society where everybody can kind of, we can find each other. We are kind of creating like a mental safety net of what it looks like. We might not be able to get out of these jobs. But we will have somewhere where we could go and call home. And so, yes, that's where Hugh Society was born from. I wanted to create a whole society and eventually, you know, turn that into chapters and communities and all those other things. But what I started with was just visuals. I knew we needed to see each other and I knew we needed to see what it looked like right so i started with the visuals of what that could um look like and i started an instagram page and i was just putting things up there of us just completely authentic completely authentic like visuals you never thought or seen before and then people were just attracted to it and then other groups started coming in and now you're seeing like oh this person's in a wine industry this person in a wine industry there's people who've been in a wine industry 20 30 40 years that other black and brown people didn't even know about or indigenous people like and then the community started coming together and then then I started doing the festival right I started doing festival at essence because I'm like okay well we're getting the people but where are the brands I'll never forget the first time I got featured in a um, magazine, no, that's not true. The first time I got featured in a magazine, I was the top five, you know, um, Psalms in South Florida. I didn't believe it was true. I said, but they, they're just randomly picking people, <laughs> right? And it wasn't a black thing. It wasn't a white thing. It was just like women. And so I was like, well, they're not picking because I'm black. So, all right. And then the, the next time I was in Miami Magazine. And at this point, I was like, I want to, I want I want some black wines to be in the photo. I never see that. And at the time there were not a lot of like black brands. So, you know, there was McBride sisters and there was Andre Mack with uh, Mouton Noir. Yeah. Phil, Phil Long, people like that. Yep. Yeah. And, um, but I didn't know about them in Miami. They hadn't reached there yet. So in Miami, it was just those two at that time. And so, um, I'll never forget how terrified I was to request this wine to be in this photo shoot. I thought they were going to cancel the whole thing. Like, that's how, like, you just couldn't talk about stuff like that. And I was like, I'm going to do it anyway. And if they cancel it, they cancel it. But, you know, sure enough, I was in this, in, in this magazine and, you know, I had a whole photo shoot and I used um, Andre Mack's, um Love Drunk Rosé. Oh, I love that wine, actually. Yeah. And like, that was like, okay, another catalyst, like, okay, we got the people, let's bring in the brands. And so I started hard amplifying black brands. Nobody at the time would even t mention black brands. Like now it's a thing. And I think it's beautiful. Um, you know, everybody kind of does it. Yeah. No one was, was talking about black brands. It was taboo. It was like, oh, you know, they're all, they're, they're low quality. They're all sugar. They're blah, blah. Like there was this whole thing around it. And I was out here in the streets, like 
peddling them. Like, did you try this? Like, you know, um, every event that I would do, I made sure from, from 2015 in every event or something that I show up to, at least one black brand has to be there. That's incredible. That, yeah. And that, that, as you said, that was really not easy to do in 2015. I mean, I remember when your Instagram came out, I remember, you know, being really captivated by it because, you know, let's face it, I'm in Italy, you know, the sort of old white men central, very patriarchal here. So I, I was so excited about what you were doing and, you know, you've, you've grown it into this fantastic, vibrant community. You have made, you know, that whole sort of deliberate effort to bring black brands to the forefront to make sure that they're you know getting exposure you know along with creating this whole sense of community you made it about business too it wasn't just about you know mental health and support it was actually about business and being an entrepreneur and you've created this huge vibrant community for black wine professionals no matter what they're doing in an industry you know producers journalists educators everybody um you got this giant diverse following now did you ever think it would take off like this you know you're you're providing mentorship and events and networking and education and you have changed the industry you definitely changed especially in the US you know so we're, what are you what are you doing next in the US because what you've accomplished in such a short time has been huge and as you said you know other communities have come in you've encouraged other people to get involved it it's it has really become something super big did you expect that no <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i i did it i you know because it was the intention was like never about notoriety it was purely and it it still is it's just about humanity and they're just like, there's no humanity in this, right? Just as a basic baseline, there's just no humanity in what's going on here. Like you want me to change everything about myself, except for the couple things that you like, just so I can enjoy a glass of wine. Yeah, there's not, there's not a lot of room for, for people. I, I'm, I'm an educator and I complain all the time that language keeps people out and it makes me furious language keeps people out. And I, you know, as you said, there was no humanity. I also feel like the, you know, this very, very formal language just scares people. It's unnecessary. So it's about humanity. You're right. Wine is one of the oldest beverages in the world. We should be sharing it. We shouldn't be scared of it. It's, um, yeah, it's incredible. Wine is about memories. Like wine is about memories. It shouldn't be about, you know, what I have on or, how I talk and I should be able to order a wine and tell you this reminds me of when I was little and I used to sit on my porch and, and eat this or you know when I used to go to church with my grandmother and I would go in the bottom of her bag and get like the peppermints I should be able to say that from a cultural perspective and it's okay yeah, it's just as valid as a gooseberry. Hi, <laughs> yeah. you talk about I had a gooseberry. I never had a gooseberry prior to, <laughs> you know, intentionally going to seek one out because everybody kept saying it and I didn't want to lie about it. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is why I love so much what you've done because you kind of kick down all the doors and, and let people come in and feel included. They, you know, this rigid system is just not for everybody and it shouldn't be. So I'm excited because I'm going to ask you about the new venture. You know, as, as I've alluded to, I'm in Italy, you're in Atlanta. Uh, so I'm in old world wine, um, lots of, lots of 
charming old white men here. We've had a hard enough time trying to get women into the industry here. But now you want to start Hue Society in Italy. And I am really excited about this. Uh, we're, we're on the Italian Wine Podcast. So, you know, let's talk a bit about your plans for Italy, you know, bringing U.S. members over here and then getting local membership growing. What made you want to start with Italy? We actually started with South Africa. Easier. It, it, I wish it was easier. It sounded easier. But, uh, you know, apartheid is, is, a, is, a, is a mother effort, boy, I tell you. <laughs> I, yeah, it's not gone. People who think it's gone are completely wrong. It's, yeah. And then, you know, so we started with South Africa. So that was our first international chapter. And then Italy was just always curious to me because it's, it's like you see all of these Black Italians, but you never hear about them in the industry. And then if you do, it's always on like a, a worker, farm worker kind of thing. And it's nothing wrong, with, you know, being agricultural worker or any of those kinds of things. But I'm like, I'm sure there's that like people are going to university and, you know, getting these educations. But like, I never see them in the forefront of anything. You're absolutely right. And, you know, as I said, I'm an educator. So, you know, I see people of color in Italy in my classes, but they always look uncomfortable. I I literally feel it is my job, first of all, to make everyone in my class feel comfortable before I even crack the book. So yeah, you're right. You never see black or brown faces, you know, in the, as you say, in the forefront, in the important jobs, you know, in the sort of the flashy, sexy jobs. Yeah. You know, we, you know, it's, it's back to that. We're, we're only used for our, our manual labor kind of stuff. And, and I just feel like, okay, well, let's figure this part out. Like, even if it's just giving people the mental stability to understand that you can be something more and, you know, and together you're a lot more powerful than, than apart. And there are probably more people interested in seeing the development of what this could look like than, than not. And I mean, from a black and brown perspective, like I, 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 I'm not going to address like the systems, systems are systems, right? All you could do with systems is dismantle. But the way to do that is collectively. And so I haven't seen any collective push in Italy to try to create something that is equitable for people, that gives people space and resources to, to build a career that they are probably longing for. I haven't seen that. And so, you know, I had a couple of people reach out to me on LinkedIn because of my work and I'm be honest, I didn't, I didn't know that my work reached that far. I'm, I'm very serious about this. Are you like, did you know the impact? I'm like, no, <laughs> I, cause I just don't think about it like that. And so when people reach out to me and they're like, oh, you know, can you come and do this? Or we really need your help. And I'm, I'm just like, oh, okay. I didn't even know that you knew who I was, but let me see if I can figure this out. My friend, Hugh Society is bigger than you think it is, honestly. I guess so. I, you know, but I, I just really, I felt really compelled to, to figure this out. And, you know, for a few months, we've been working on this and there, there've been a lot of hiccups and barriers and people try to block and, um, you know, you try to create um, a space and, and people don't like change. They don't even like the idea of change. And I think once you get used to it, it's different, but the initial idea, the thought of like you changing something, because they think that you're trying to take their power. Right. There's this insecurity that if you redistribute power, that you're going to lose 
yours. And that's not true. And I can tell you that from a personal standpoint, the redistribution of power and resources does not take anything away from you at all. And often can can lift you up, you know, quite frankly, you can learn, you can grow, you can be better than you were before when you thought you were more powerful. And actually, your power can grow just by being more open to new things. So I completely agree with you. And we are very excited about you coming in 2024 and, and getting Q Society off the ground in Italy. We're going to do everything we can to support you with that. But I, I want to talk about a couple of other things before I let you have your day back to yourself. I have a, I've got a favorite quote from you talking about your daughter. You said she learned how to swirl when she was two and she loves holding wine glasses and she loves swirling them. And your favorite thing about watching her do that is that it's it's so natural to her. You didn't get to grow up with wine, uh, but for her, it's a natural, organic thing, and it's really incredible to witness her. And I had similar things with my daughters. I didn't grow up with wine either, and they were swirling their milk at dinner when they were little because that they thought that's just what everybody did. <laughs> but um, <laughs> all of our daughters now can find wine really accessible because they've always seen it through us. So, you know, how can we make this happen for more young people, you know, more women, more people of color, how can we kick open these doors even farther and make them feel welcome, make them feel like it's an organic place for them to be? I I believe that we have to normalize what's normal to us, right? Like right now, this wine thing is normal to us. And the more you normalize it, and, and by that, I don't just mean like the beverage, I mean the normalize your language in the wine space, normalize who you are and how you show up in the wine space, right? Because one thing I never want my daughter to see me doing is pretending to be somebody else to be accepted. And I think it's so important that we start normalizing and accepting and understanding like there's not one way to do something. And um, people have brilliant minds that do not look like you. And the more we're able to accept what that is and, and be open to the idea that, hey, I don't have to talk about gooseberries. Let's, I want to know what you, what you, what did you grow up with? You know, like we're forced to learn this, but can we normalize what somebody else grew up, you know, drinking or eating? Yeah. And exalt it. You know, everybody's experience is valuable. The other thing you were instrumental in launching, you know, sort of along these lines was Roots Foundation with Carlton McCoy and Ikimi Dubois. So you were providing scholarships and job placements in the wine industry. And to be honest, you know, this is this is, you know, putting your money where your mouth is because it's okay to build a community and get people in, but if you can't pay them, educate them, you're not going to get far. So, you know, you said you want Q Society and Roots Foundation to become the number one wine community in the world and in create impactful events and be a conduit of change, you know, that we've talked about so much. So Overall, what's what's the strategy? How are we going to get this money into the right hands, get people with scholarships, get people with jobs in the industry that we, you know, as you said, they're longing for. I thought that was a really emotional word to use because you're right about that. What's your vision for for this side of the coin, you know, getting getting people to, you know, open up the doors, give people jobs, give people scholarships, you know, we can make them fall in love with wine, but we need to put money into this. What's the strategy? I think, you know, holding people accountable. Who are the powers that be? Who are the decision makers? How are we getting to those people? Because that's that's where it starts. 
And I also think that social proof is really important. And so when we get people who are in high positions that are in alignment with us, that are, you know, actually putting their money where their mouth is and not just talking about it or, or at bottom levels, um, putting people of color in, fr- in front facing positions to create a facade. But at the top level, the decision makers all still look the same. That's what I focus on. I see the bottom level stuff. Yeah, that's so true. Not not tokenism. We need we need diversity all the way through the industry. And you need to hold people accountable. Like, you know, they, they have this term holding people to the fire, putting people to the fire, whatever, you know, and that, it sounds negative, but it's the truth on some level. It's just like you got to apply pressure sometimes. And the thing is, I never and I've never been afraid to apply pressure or to, you know, be very vocal and honest about what's going on. And I'll, I'll tell you like, Hey, because I don't believe that there, um, no one owns me. I don't owe anybody anything. So I don't feel that pressure to, to be silent about issues or things that I see that are wrong or that are happening in the world or in, in the wine world or, or wherever, because at the end of the day, I'm always going to try and do what's right and what's best for the, the greater, you know, community. And so, yeah, you're right. You know, what you said about it's not negative, you know, this, you know, needing to be loud and, and needing to hold people accountable. It's not negative. There are a lot of decision makers out there who are really great people and they're just not aware of, you know, their sort of their mental process is, you know, biased. They aren't even aware of it. So, you know, holding them accountable, educating them, making them see is going to make a difference. I completely agree with you there. I know that just just this year, you won Wine Enthusiast Wine Star Award for Visionary of the Year, you know, so you're an advocate of the year from Vine Pair Magazine, and you're on the board of James Beard Awards. So you are becoming one of these people with power. So uh, you're becoming one of these decision makers in a front facing role, as I said, with a far bigger reach than you think you have. I can promise you that. So, you know, you've got these roles coming to you now, you've earned them, you've got them in your hands, you know, promoting diversity and hospitality industry. And can you leverage your perspective? You know, how are you going to use your power to to do these things? Because it's not easy. And you you are the person who's going to be leading the charge. I think that I really think that I, you know, I, I believe in equity. And I think that people have to learn the difference between equity and equality. That is so true. I am not afraid to sacrifice or say no to things. You know, if it's right, if it's if it's the right thing to do, and I'm gonna make sure that you know we're we're changing the room. I'm not afraid to lose things in order to make that happen. You know, some people are afraid to walk away from jobs or positions or uh, money in particular. If it's out of alignment, I'm if it's not in alignment with my goals and equi- equitable um, situations, all those kinds of things, I walk away from it. The answer is no, and that, and I think that you know I'm kind of building that reputation in the sense of like I'm okay with those sacrifices, and I think that as a leader, you have to be willing to to do that if you're going to stay in tune with where you're trying to go and making sure that you are leading your community to a, a better place and, and leaving every space better than which you came into it. It's brave and risky, both. Oh, for sure. It's terrifying. I won't pretend like, you know, I think there, 
you can be brave and be terrified at the same time. I think they go hand in hand, actually. Um, it's it's completely terrifying because, you know, this is also my livelihood and I have a child and I have a family and all those things. And so me doing these things is not easy. It's not the 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 glory or any of the rest of that stuff. Like I've lost out on a lot of things because I say no when I know that you're trying to use me or get me to validate or using my likeness to validate whatever's going on. And I, and I know that what you're actually doing is not equitable and it's not going to help anybody but you or your business or, you know, whatever that looks like. And so I just, I try to stay as authentic as possible and, you know, normalize what that looks like. You know, you're going to see my big earrings. You're going to see my braids. You're going to see all of these things. And those are just powerful decisions in itself because a lot of people are not able to show up as themselves. And I try to encourage that as much as possible because, again, the more we normalize our basic humanity (laughs) and our joy, the more the, the systems start to change because they don't have a choice. Well, I think there is no way I'm going to get anything more impactful out of you than that. So I'm going to leave it there. And I'm going to tell you right now that I am really looking forward to seeing you authentically show up in Italy, because I know that we're going to do some good work. And I know that you are going to be a great power for change with Hugh Society here. So thank you so, so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. And I will see you in 2024. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this and, and the challenge and, you know, and, and the fruitfulness that shall be gained from uh, these new experiences. Thank you for listening. And remember to tune in next Wednesday when I'll be chatting with another fascinating guest. Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with a daily show. Tune in every day and discover all our different shows. You can find us at italianwinepodcast.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your pods.